Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. California has been the canvas for many different kinds of utopian projects over the years. Our water infrastructure is some of the most extensive in the world, turning desert to palm-treed metropolis. Our state has made and remade the future, movies, computing, the internet. But a different vision has taken hold among some ecologists, one in which the plants that were here before European colonization are restored in our cities and wildernesses, Native plants and their co-evolved insect partners return, helping restore ecological balance even as the planet moves deeper into the climate crisis. We'll talk native plants, the people who love them, and new legislation aiming to help them proliferate. After this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. A bill working its way through the California legislature aims to boost the proliferation of native plants by requiring landscaping on some public and commercial areas to use at least 75 percent low water local native plants by 2035. We're talking the land outside city halls, you know, the stuff that's usually some brownish grass. If it takes effect, the bill could have a dramatic effect in pulling forward demand for native plants and solidifying the position of at least some of the pre-colonization flora of the region, even as 40 million people and their attendant development has shrunk the space available to our native plants. Here to discuss the bill and its underni- uh, the underlying principles of the native plant movement, we're joined by Andrea Williams, Director of Biodiversity Initiatives for the California Native Plant Society. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you. Good morning. We're also joined by Michael Wilcox, Senior Lecturer of Native American Studies and Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity at Stanford. Welcome. Thank you. And we're joined by Nina House, Museum Scientist at the University in Jepson Herbaria at UC Berkeley. Welcome, Nina. Hi. Thank you for having me. So, Andrea, I know you've been working on this bill. What would it actually sort of do over the next decade? Sure. Over the next decade, there's a long on-ramp of beginning to require local native plants in non-residential landscaping. So that's, as you mentioned, city halls, um, commercial developments, places like that. And so instead of having non-functional turf, um, it prohibits that in those areas and instead requires a percentage ramping up to 75% local native plants, excluding areas that produce edible species, edible plants, and areas using recycled water. Yeah. I mean, at this point, how many native plants are planted in the kind of terrain that you're talking about here? Yeah, we don't have an exact measure of that, but 
our nearest estimation is that of all the plants sold, around 3% right now are native plants. And so mm. there's already um, a stated preference for native plants, but we're really not seeing that translate into action. And have you been able to run some numbers on you know, how much land this would change in terms of acres or how much the demand for native plants would increase as a result of the bill? We have not. Um, we're working pretty closely with the assembly member's office and getting input from a lot of the nursery and growers and wholesalers on what sort of an on-ramp they would need to change this, um, the, what they're proffering right now to the local native species. And that would be assembly member uh, Laura Friedman from uh, down in Southern California. Yes, uh, thank you. So why introduce this bill now? Like, why push it forward now? Um, is there is it because of climate change or is it, you know, a different set of considerations? It's climate change and the biodiversity crisis. So we're recognizing over these past few years in California that there's really a need to look for multi-benefit solutions to a lot of these crises. And so when you're looking at um, the recent three-year drought, the restrictions on watering non-functional turf, you know, the it's right there in the name, it's non-functional. So how can we change out our landscapes in a way that not only reduces water use, which reduces energy use, but provides a biodiversity benefit for our local native species? Mm-hmm. You know, Michael, you teach uh, Native American studies. You work with students in a native plant garden. I mean, how do you talk with them about the connection between the plants, the biome, and the kind of cultures that uh, have their roots in this area? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, first, uh, you know, what we try to do in the garden is to recenter indigenous histories around uh, plants and indigenous technologies in the hopes that um, students are going to encounter Native peoples for the first time, not in missions or by going to missions, but by understanding their specific adaptations and the genius that uh, allowed people from this area to live on the landscape for, you know, tens of thousands, at least 10,000 years in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I emphasize resiliency and also sustainability. Um, you know, a lot of interpretations of Native communities and Native uh, tribes were that they were kind of stuck in, ter- in time and they didn't evolve the, in, in dramatic ways in their material culture. But if you change the metric to sustainability, you're looking at the other question is how do we celebrate the fact that people were able to live with the same food systems for uh, thousands of years in a bay in, in the time where they watched climate change take place in real time? Yeah, because one of the things that you've noted in your classes is that, you know, the bay formed during the time in which, uh, in which people were living here. The bay went through massive changes. So it's the response to all those changes, right, that you're talking about when you, when you mentioned resiliency as kind of this core attribute. Right. So, um, you know, change is a part of, of Muwekma Ohlone and Ohlone people's um, cosmology. Change is always present. And so uh, the idea that people would be afraid, afraid of culture change and afraid of climate change is kind of antithetical to the belief system that they have. Um, you know, for, for, for in terms of the bay forming, if you look back in time, uh, the, the, the coastline was about 300 feet lower than we are right now. So the, the current water flow from the Sierra Nevada mountains into the ocean went through the Golden Gate out past the Farallon Islands about 20 miles yeah. uh, on this coastal plain. And, um, you know, people watched the bay form. So uh, like many people who have uh, origin stories that deal with a flood, Mwakma is no different. Mm-hmm. Everybody has a story about a flood. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. 
You know, Nina, how, how do people who work in this like botanical world, how do they define native plant? Yeah, so um, this is something that actually, so I work for the University in Jepson Herbaria. Right. And um, part of our, one of our main projects is the Jepson Manual, which has now turned into the Jepson eFlora and making it more accessible, right? Like we're all like an online people now, right? <laughs> um, so, the, but the original Jepson Manual defined um, the, so we, we call them Jepson bioregions, and it's this ecogeographic system that um, uses natural landscapes and biota to delimit different parts of the state. Um, and we have the map on our, on our website. Um, but it's really before that people were using counties to define where plants were growing. But you can like, I mean, if you look at counties in California, you have like small counties, you have- Los San, Angeles County. Yeah, yeah, San Bernardino, right? right? So, and there are so many different types of habitat in each of those counties. So the Jepson bioregions sorts of um, like helps us delimit delimitate like all the different habitat types that are occurring in California and then we um, define like those bioregions we put plants um, we have like we have a plant and then we have the list of bioregions that that plant will occur in got it yeah so it's not just sort of like native to northern California it would be native to you know a particular elevation Mm -hmm. in northern California within a certain distance to the coastline or something yeah we'll have like southern coast ranges north coast ranges like southern Sierra Nevada high southern Sierra Nevada foothills like Mm -hmm. um, all of these different types of yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, Andrea um, in terms of this bill that is working its way through the legislature how native does a native plant have to be to count under the sort of rubric of the bill yeah, it needs to be native to the Jepson region. And so that takes into account um, what Nina was just speaking about, the particular geographies and climates. And so if you think about the Bay Area, it's got nine counties. I believe it's got three Jepson regions in it. And so it recognizes that there's a difference, say, in Contra Costa County between the heavily Bay-influenced side, the sort of you know main Bay Area part, and then further east when we start to get that that really delta and inland valley influence. Mm-hmm. And so it looks at what's the particular region that this plant is native to, knowing that some plants are native to many regions, but where are you in your region and what plants grow in that region with you? You know, Michael Wilcox, since we know that indigenous people, you know, altered the region's landscape, gardened the lands, I mean, does it make sense to think of the sort of pre-contact biome as the only standard for the region's flora? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, one one thing that you take away from reading primary historical documents about uh, the early historical period and what's happened in the Bay since the, the early colonization um, is that uh, there's just been a, a transformation of, of, of plant uses. So with the introduction of cattle, um, that changes everything. Um, mm-hmm. But the really interesting story is that, um, you know, what the native grasses are a really important part of this story because for, for most of uh, native history, grasses are the primary food source for people who are living along the coast. And acorns really only take over about 1,000 years A.D. So prior to that, people are using what's called a broad spectrum spectrum of uh, food sources going from the tops of the mountains all the way to the bay. And that whole rich ecology was a kind of an insurance system that allowed people to not overexploit specific areas. And if something happens to one of those plant sources or animal sources, you have another choice. So it's a kind of um, a kind of uh, 
adaptation that's then shifted over when cattle are introduced uh, by, by the Spanish, and they bring with them seeds and weeds that outcompete, in many cases, the native grasses. So does that, for you, kind of trouble the definition of native plant at all, or do you feel like the one that we're using basically works? Yeah, it's, that, that's, that's what I was trying to get to in my brain, was that um, so people and, and plants co-evolved in California. That's a really important part of the story, is that um, you know California grasses are what's called allelopathic. They put out little um, chemicals that inhibit the, the presence of other plants close by, and that happens to, to correlate to fire ecology as the main kind of technology for managing the spaces in the Bay Area. Um, and the grasses are adapted to space themselves apart so that fires don't jump so quickly uh, from one plant to another. That's one adaptation. And then we have a, an account from Vancouver um, in the early 1800s who comes into what's now um, the, the western side of the bay, and he walks. He's traveling from what's now Gilroy up to San Carlos, and he says, this is like an open parkland. There's no understory anywhere. And what's he, what he's noticing is that the ladder fuels that would kind of spread fires from one tree to another have been taken down. And he's looking at this managed landscape. So there isn't a, a I think there's a pre-human time, but it's so far in the in the past mm-hmm. that we can really just imagine people being, that the landscape being managed by Native people for like mm-hmm. millennia. Yeah. We're talking about California's native plants and efforts to boost their presence and popularity. Joined by Michael Wilcox, Senior Lecturer of Native American Studies and Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity at Stanford University. Nina House, Museum Scientist at the University in Jepson, Herbaria at UC Berkeley, and Andrea uh, Williams, Director of Biodiversity Initiatives for the California Native Plant Society. We'd love to hear from you. Do you have a favorite native plant? Or do you dislike a non-native invasive plant? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. I'll tell you mine. It's the Mariposa Lily, the best thing to find while out trail running. Numbers 866-733-6786. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about California's native plants and efforts to boost their presence and popularity at a time of you know, climate change and you know, mass species loss. We're joined by Nina House, museum scientist at the University and Jepson Herbaria at UC Berkeley, Michael Wilcox from Stanford, 
and Andrea Williams, Director of Biodiversity Initiatives for the California Native Plant Society. Want to add another voice to our conversation. Kathy Crane is the owner of Yerba Buena Nursery at Pastorino Farms. Welcome, Kathy. Good morning. So what does Yerba Buena Nursery specialize in? We grow about 600 kinds of California native plants, with the emphasis being how to get those plants into people's gardens, backyards, and replace lawns. Hmm. So our emphasis is not on restoration or on research, but on the grassroots steps that it takes to educate people and to help them value native plants for their gardens. Hmm. And what are the things people come to you with? Are there are they worried about particular things about native plants? Well, first of all, they come to us not knowing what a native plant is. Hmm. A lot of people are under the impression that if uh, they have to use a native plant, it might be a cactus. <laughs> and there's a lot more to native plants than succulents. Um, and... I think our job is to help them, instead of shaming them that they don't know anything about native plants, offering them information that helps them to Mm. understand them better. Is there like a gateway plant where you show them a shrub or a tree and you say like, look how beautiful this is. This is a native. Is there one like that? I would say the one that really draws people is the Arctostaphylus. The manzanita, mm. they love the red bark. Mm-hmm. They want to touch it. Um, <laughs> they want to admire it. Uh, and manzanitas are one of the most widely grown plant in California. And they range from six inches tall to 20 or 30 feet tall, yeah. any size. If you don't want to touch manzanita bark when you see it, I just, I don't know what's going on. That is, it's so inviting. It looks like nothing else. Um, let's uh, let's bring in a, our first caller. Let's bring in uh, Kristen in Woodside. Welcome, Kristen. Hi, thanks for having me on. I called in it before. Um, I would love to say that my favorite plant is the redwood tree. Um, it's very, everyone sort of knows what it is. People come to see them here, um, but it really is so unique. To our area in California um, and I love the fact that they are just magnificent and they are resilient you know they're resilient to drought um, and they're incredibly resilient to fire so that is my favorite plant I actually used to work at Yerba Buena Nursery many years ago oh my gosh really? it's, nice, it's nice to hear Kathy come on back and see us <laughs> yeah. 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 I will well, thank you so much thanks so much Kristen yeah really appreciate that I mean Michael Wilcox it's pretty hard to dispute the redwood as I mean, an amazing native plant of, of California. Do you have your own, though, aside, aside from it? Well, I thought you'd never ask. So <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite plants, probably my favorite plant in the world, is the California bay laurel. Oh, yeah. Um, it's a member of the avocado family. I got interested in this, so um, I, looked, I looked it up. And uh, so it's an ancient tree. And the fruit, if you open it up when it, when it uh, goes to fruiting, you can, it looks like a mini avocado. Really? And just, yeah. Um, and... Um, so much of the the stuff in that plant is just magical. Um, the the leaves have uh, these properties in them. If you crush them, I wouldn't recommend you take a big deep breath, but <laughs> they will clear out your sinuses. And in previous times, people used this to treat asthma. You could, and if you inhale it, it will bronchodilate you. And um, also for headaches and really cool uh, uses for disinfectants, for wounds, and also 
Um, in people's homes, it kept rats and mice away. Uh, rats don't like it. So the leaves would be put into these granaries to keep bugs from invading and eating up the uh, acorn uh, wow. caches that Native people had. I mean, it, it, the leaf smell is basically vapor rub, I think. That's <laughs> right. I think it's a natural vapor rub. Um, I will, I'll tell you my favorite, and then Nina, you uh, can tell me, your, tell me yours. But I, um, I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong. Cianothus? Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Did I get it right? That's right. Oh, amazing. All right. <laughs> They, I started noticing them this spring. Um, they, they're kind of past their peak at this point, I think. But look out for them in the springtime because the blues are so amazing. And when you get close, there's an actual sound to them because the bees love them so much that you, you can just hear them buzzing away. Um, Nina, how about you? Favorite, favorite native plant? Oh, my God. As a botanist, this is like an impossible question. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> um, this year, I was super excited about the fritillaries. So that's the genus Fritillaria. Uh-huh. And the common name, well, one of the common names is stink bells. Um, and there's also like chocolate lily. And like I got to see like chocolate lily for the first time stink bell and chocolate lily feel like on very different like (laughs) spectrum um well because a lot of them are stinky and they're pollinated by flies and they're just super cool but yeah calicordis also like is one of my favorites too calicordis being the mariposa lily but i didn't want to see i i had it written down but i didn't want to say that loud this is one of my (laughs) (laughs) um let's uh well actually first andrea you also get to um say your favorite native plant before we uh before we move on Excellent. Similarly, a, a difficult thing, like which of your 6,000 children do you think <laughs> yeah. um, But somebody mentioned the, the redwood tree. That's our state tree. I am a big fan of our state grass, which is purple needle grass, really beautiful mm. native grass, um, strongly resistant to drought. Probably some have been around since before the state was a state. Um, really beautiful, like garnet colored flowers on that. Um, so that's probably one of my favorites, along with California wild oats, which is Danthonia californica. Really, really tasty seeds on that. The best oats you've ever had. Oh, wow. You can grow oats in your own yard. Um, Kathy, uh, are those things easy to find, purple needle grass? And- we grow and sell all of them. Now, finding them and deciding to use them are something totally different. So mm. I would say the demand for purple needle grass is very low. Huh. Uh, the availability is there. Interesting. And why, why is it that you think the, the demand is low? Well, from a, a home gardener point of view, at least, purple needle grass, as lovely as it's being described here, does look a little bit like a weed. <laughs> and so people look at a pot and it's got this grass in it that we all admire but uh and it costs fifteen dollars and they go well what would i want to buy that weed for <laughs> and what do you tell them well that it's not a weed yeah. and i try and ex- ex- expound the virtues of the plants um and combine them with others as well i love it um they we also have a bunch of comments coming in from listeners with uh some of the their favorites um, least favorite non-native, I think I might agree with this one, uh, Ivy. Um, Christina tweets, love to hear that Alexis is a fellow member of Team Calacortis. Cal- Calacortis. Yeah, yeah Calacortis. <laughs> uh, Kathleen writes, favorites include Clarkias, especially mm-hmm. Ungulata poppies, oaks, great for butterflies, Cianothus species, Buckeye, and on and on. Please tell listeners about the Tilden Park Native Plant Garden. Anyone visited there? 
I went up. I went for a bike ride up there the other day. That was my first time. I started oh, at Inspiration Point, and, and yeah, it's super beautiful. Beautiful views of the bay from yeah. up there, and yeah, lots of. But it, because I was on a bike, I didn't get to do much botanizing that day. Yes, <laughs> that I, uh, that would be a really great place for people to become familiar with native plants, where you can park, walk around, and kind of see it all. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's bring in another uh, caller. Uh, we've got Leslie in Ukiah. Welcome. Hi, how are you? Hey, doing well. Thanks for calling. Good. Um, I wanted to make a quick comment about the um, pepperwood tree, the nut on that. I think um, it's called a California Bay. If you chop them up and you put them with dark chocolate, hmm. can't put a lot in there, but it's amazing. It has this amazing flavor. So that's a recipe wow. you can add to your repertoire. Wow. Thank um, you. I have a... You're welcome. I have a front yard that has a little patch of grass. Um, I'm in Ukiah. I'm in kind of my own microclimate. Um, So shady under a big, giant valley oak, but hot afternoon sun. I'd like to take my grass out Hmm. and put in a ground cover that has some flowering because I have many, many native bees in my yard. I have a pollinator garden, so I have lots of native bees. But it's a weird space. Um, it's on irrigation because, of course, it's a lawn, and it waters other stuff. So it'd have to be something that could, you know, tolerate shade, some hot sun, mm-hmm. and some water throughout the summer. Kathy's um, thinking. I can see her yeah, thinking over you know, there. The, the shade <laughs> plant category is the smallest of the of the native plants that that at least we grow in the nursery. Um, but since you had a lawn there. Chances are you have some light, and perhaps you could do one of our part shade ground covers, like like one of the Ceanothus. Um, we have one called Centennial, that's a low one, uh, or maybe one of the low growing Arctostaphylus, um, like okay. Radiant. Mm. Okay, I love um, that. Are are clovers native to California? Or are they non? I I have clover in the grass. There is an oxalis, but it is not the weedy oxalis that most people have with the yellow flowers. And the oxalis that we have grows primarily in the redwood forest. So you would not probably be able to use that where you are as a replacement. Cool. Okay. Hey, Leslie, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks You're so much welcome. for your question. Thank you. Good luck with the uh, with the patch. Um, let's bring in uh, Greta in San Francisco, uh, Sacramento. Excuse me, Greta. Welcome. Oh hi, my favorite plant is the Cleveland sage. Ooh. So um, I am um, a UC Master Gardener in Sacramento County, and I think there's an important aspect to this bill that I don't think you've mentioned yet, and that's the opportunity to change minds about what a beautiful landscape is. When people go to a public space, they'll get a chance to see native plants that they may not have seen before, and this will help the public to see with their own eyes how beautiful and versatile native plants are. Mm-hmm. And I think they'll also get to see uh, get and understand what food deserts for native birds, bees, and butterflies most public plantings are because they'll see birds visiting they haven't seen before and, and native bees. Hopefully they'll want to plant some of these native plants in their own garden. So I think it's a terrific opportunity to change minds, too. 
Yeah, absolutely. Hey, thank you so much, Greta. I'm going to go um, straight to Glenn, who has a related comment. Hey, Glenn in Lafayette, welcome. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, yeah, she mentioned that uh, um, the, the birds that will show up, you know, one of the things that's really critical about native plants is that they are hosts for caterpillars, and caterpillars are really the primary food for for wild birds. So when you plant um, native plants, you, you break up that food desert and bring you know, just incredible diversity into your yard. So interesting. Hey, Glenn, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for that. Andrea um, Williams with the California Native Plant Society. I mean, one of the questions that I think I have about this bill is we know that the climate is changing considerably. In fact, already has, and that we've you know dammed rivers, we've undergrounded streams. Like the environmental conditions in which these plants evolved has changed a lot. So, how do we think about incorporating you know not just our current environment, which has already been sort of deranged, but also the future one when we're thinking about these native plantings? Yeah, that's a great question. And one of the things that I always like to point out is that plants are evolving right along with us. So there's really when there's really strong selective pressure, um, it's been shown in a lot of studies, and there was a Q summary of this, Q garden stunt summary of this some years ago, that plants are, that are already evolved to some drought tolerance are able to evolve and thrive in a new climate, in this changing climate. And so that's one of the other reasons why we are selecting kind of the local natives, low water use. They're able to survive very well, um, even in a, in a warming climate. And then the other piece of this is that our yards are not you know, out in the wilds. And so there's also been some really extensive work in Southern California that shows that even with just a tiny bit of irrigation, um, our native plants can be more firewise and um, have longer bloom periods than a lot of the other commonly planted or um, used species. Yeah. So it doesn't take as much water to keep them healthy and green. You know, Nina, as a, as a botanist, I wonder how you approach this question. I mean, right in the you know, herbaria in which you work, they collected a lot of those plants right in the 19th century. We can see that their ranges are changing, right? And people try and understand that. So how, how, how do you approach that the topic of sort of native plants in a climate changing world. Yeah. So one of the I mean, I think this bill is great. I think it's a step in the right direction for a lot of important reasons. But um, one of the downsides is like the way that we're defining local native plants in the bill. Um, they the way that it local is defined is by the Jepson bioregion. So let's say you have Toyon, which is um, Heteromeles arbutifolia, right? This is a plant that has a wide range across the whole state of California. You can get it from coastal Northern California all the way to Southern California. So this is technically a local plant here in the Bay Area. But if you are, the bill doesn't say that you need to source the seeds of that plant here in the Bay Area. So you can take seeds from SoCal, dump them up here in the Bay Area and say like, whoop, okay, local native plant, I'm done. But that's like, this is... Plants are it's like not the spirit of the law. No. <laughs> That's like following the letter, perhaps, but not the spirit. Exactly. So you have, yeah, it's like these plants are super adapted to where they're where they're growing, right? And like SoCal, we know we know we were talking about this out in the lobby before this, but SoCal, the the climate is very different than up here in the Bay Area. So these plants, like in the long term, like you, what we're going to end up is with this thing called genetic swamping, where you have 
the like plant like the plants that are in the southern range now are are mixing with the plants in the northern range and in the long term like what we need with climate change is plants that are adapted to like all of these different like ad- adaptations are going to end up leading in directions that like maybe can handle climate change better than like the ones at the southern you know like these southernmost populations are used to heat so maybe like they'll be able to handle the heat more but if you start taking NorCal genes and putting them down there now we're like swamping everything out and everything's mixing together and you're losing genetic diversity that could potentially handle climate change better Gosh, that's so interesting I had not thought about uh, Andrea talk to me how are you um trying to trying to deal with that or at least talk about it yeah there's a couple different ways that that we're looking at this one is um this is the first of its kind law in requiring local natives and in defining what a local native is so our ideal is, yes, that locally sourced, locally grown seed. Um, and so we hope to get there eventually. For the ramp up period, we do recognize that there's a need for getting these plants in the ground. Um, the other piece of that is that we're also working on a California native seed strategy um, where we're, we're getting more native seeds grown for local native species. And there's a potential for that um, to have, but that's primarily for restoration. Mm. There's a potential for a secondary market there for those seeds to go in to be grown and by wholesalers and then sold to nurseries and sold to folks um, for planting in these areas. God, it's just so fascinating that there's so many levels to what, you know, there's the native germplasm, basically. There's the native plant. There's the, it's just, that's fascinating. We're talking about California's native plants efforts to boost their presence and popularity and the kind of complexities that attend to the you know, very concept of a native plant. Joined by Andrea Williams, Director of Biodiversity Initiatives for the California Native Plant Society. Nina House, Museum Scientist at the University in Jepson Herbaria at UC Berkeley. Kathy Crane, owner of the Yerba Buena Nursery at Pastorino Farms. And Michael Wilcox, a Senior Lecturer of Native American Studies and Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity at Stanford. We're going to get to more of your comments about your favorite native plants and questions about how to cultivate them. The number is 866-733-6786. Phone lines are full right now, so you might want to try the email address. It's forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about California's native plants. We're talking about new legislation that could boost the presence and popularity of native plants. And we're talking about the complexities of even calling them native plants. We're joined by Kathy Crane, owner of Yerba Buena Nursery at Pastorino Farms, Nina House, museum scientist at the University of Jepson Herbaria at UC Berkeley, Michael Wilcox, a senior lecturer of Native American Studies and Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity at Stanford University, and Andrea Williams, Director of Biodiversity Initiatives for the California Native Plant Society. Before we go back to the phones, Michael, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how the different indigenous folks that you've worked with in this region, if you've what you've learned about their approach to these plant species and, and cultivating them. Yeah, it's, it's a really important social issue for Native folks in the Bay. So, um, <clears throat> you know, between... Um, I guess Santa Rosa down to almost Santa Barbara, there aren't any federally recognized tribes on the coast. And that's a function of of the value of land around here. And um, what's happened to Native people is they've been pushed out of the Bay Area like so many um, residents through gentrification, just a process that happens. And so their main concern is finding not only places where they can gather and do ceremonies, but also places to live. And that's a main Mm -hmm. um, challenge for for tribes in the Bay Area. But... um, in terms of approaches, uh, I was ex- met um, Chairman Val Lopez of the Amamutsan tribe about 10 years ago, and he started this land trust, the Amamutsan Land Trust, with folks at UC Berkeley and a really robust group of scientists and, and citizens and tribal members. And uh, if you, you, I encourage people to look up uh, Chairman Lopez's talks on the web, mm-hmm. but he will say that the charge of the responsibility and privilege of, of taking care of, of land is is given in plants is a responsibility that comes from the creator. And their their charge is to care of, for you, in, in a quote, Mother Earth and all living things. Mm-hmm. So that's a really important part of not only um, caring for the land, but it creates relationships between people on the land. So getting people on the land to interact with these plants that are part of the the stuff that made people uh, survive in this landscape. It's really interesting. Um, I work in Hawaii too, and one of the things that uh, becomes really clear is is that when you're there, people talk about being connected to the landscape, connected to stones, earth, all the elements mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. And if you're from an island or a place that that has the sacred landscape that you're you're people come from, your physical body is made up of everything from the land. It comes from nowhere else. So you are, in fact, in relationship, chemical relationship to the living things around you and the non-living things. And that's that's what I, in a general way, would describe as uh, the central importance is that there's a restoration of, of people that takes place when people are able to interact with um, native plants. You can also look up uh, show we, shows we've done around things like the Segorite uh, Land Trust and it does seem like that is one of the ways in which more land will become available for this kind of, of plant as people put together these land trusts uh, for, you know, for, with uh, indigenous uh, folks. Um, I wanted to ask, Andrea, we had a listener um, comment seems important to address. Sandy writes in to say, you know, uh, I'm confused about the advice that uh, manzanita is a native plant for Californians. Uh, around Lake Tahoe in recent years, we've been told by our local Firewise group that we have to remove manzanita because it's a flammable plant. How, how do you see that? Yeah, and a lot of that is a matter of education. So any any plant will burn, and most of our houses are made up of dead plants, and they will burn as well. Um, it's healthy plants and plants that are able to um, survive with low water. 
um, in times that are very dry that make them firewise. So just saying a category of plants mm. is mm-hmm. plant more flammable than another is very often just a factor of how they burn in the wild and not how they survive in our in our garden environments. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, hope you heard that, Sandy. Um, Andrew in San Francisco, welcome to the show. Hey guys, um, Andrew Korf here. Say, I work at um, Genentech and just wanted to comment how beautiful the landscaping is around our campus mm. with um, with drought tolerant and also native plants. Uh, just a great example of, of what businesses can do. My actual question was about the ice plant that is very pretty and seems to kind of cover the the land the. Northern tip of California to Southern. Um, would you guys comment on the ice plant, whether we love it or hate it? Or um, yeah, uh, that was that was. You should have seen Nina's face. That was definitely disgust. Um, uh, t- talk to us, Nina. It's just terrible. Like a lot of these, it just it just takes over. Like restoration, you can pull it out, but then it just like comes back, and it's just like this never ending. I don't know, like how we're actually gonna like be not to be like a Debbie Downer. I don't know how like long term we're actually gonna make a huge impact on this plant. Because people continue to plant it too is part of the problem. Like we're just like, this is great on our roadside. So like get rid of this thing. And people plant it, right? Particularly in sandy places because yes. they think that it is a stabilizer of right. the do you know, whatever Dooney type environment that they have there, right? That's where they plant it. And I can't speak to that. Yeah, yeah, and Caltrans actually used to plant it for that reason. Huh. And I think so many of us saw it that we thought it was native. Yeah, I, I mean, mm-hmm. I did. I mean, not mm-hmm. recently, but when I first saw it, I was like, oh, wow, that's interesting. Um, what should people plant instead of ice plant if they have, you know, let's say they do live in that kind of setting? What would be a better thing to plant? Uh, they could plant um, seaside daisy, origeron, which is a coastal plant. Um, I would say, again, it depends on their locale, but uh, Yerba Buena Nursery is in Half Moon Bay and we're on the ocean and we have a lot of coastal plants that we grow. We grow plants from San Bruno Mountain. Um, Some of those would be appropriate as well. Heterotheca, if you know that plant, it's a San Bruno Aster. That would be a good one too. Mm -hmm. Sorry. And if you're looking for like... Uh, a succulent there's dudleyas you know like no, the, I love the live forevers right so it's yeah. like these things are super cute and there's a lot of like rare ones that are in the trade already yeah so. we we grow those even though people come to our nursery and try and steal them oh, oh my gosh yeah. Really? yeah they do they they take their shoe and they kick the plant out of the ground and put it in their handbags when they could walk inside and buy one. Wow. It Wasn't seemed... there like a whole thing about people stealing Dudley as a while back oh, too? Like shoveling them to trucks? Really? Yeah. Yeah. People constantly. Yeah. It's but a that's a good coaching. option for a something instead of a South African plant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is where the ice plants are from. Um, let's uh, bring in Allison in San Ramon. Hi there. Thank you for this great conversation. I wanted to mention an annual event that's been going for, I think, about 20 years, whole Bay Area, from San Pablo and Richmond all the way down the Bayside areas and Inland Gardens to Livermore. So you've got all the climates covered, and, and there is a website. It is the Bringing Back the Natives Garden Tour. Huh. So you the can just Bringing Google Back. Bringing 
Yeah. Well, I w- sorry, I said the the website itself is bringingbackthenatives.net. Got it. Bringing back the and Got it. Full of resources. Yeah. And in fact, when you they have an in-person tour every May, and because of the pandemic, they added an online tour as an option. You can walk into all of these gardens, and when I've attended, there have been about 40 different homes where people wow. have volunteered to have visitors come to their garden. There are docents who know what the plants are. Every plant is marked with a little sign that shows if it's good for hummingbirds, um, you know, pollinators, what sort of species of animal it benefits, whether it's deer resistant, you know, full of information. And when you register, which you could do for free or you could donate, which I would recommend, you get a booklet. Oh, nice. It is just it's yeah. full experience, full of resources and information. Bringing and back the natives.net. Thank you so much, Allison. Really appreciate that. I hope everybody goes next yeah, year. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, you know, Maggie, one of our listeners, wrote in a say, and this is kind of a this is kind of a complex question. Maggie writes in a say, in order for the bill to be effective, the bill that we've been kind of the, the peg for this show, it needs to address the issue of biodiversity loss holistically, moving from quote, which species of plant should we choose, to how do our landscaping practices support pollinators and the food web? How are pesticides, plant propagation, and climate change going to be addressed? Uh, Andrea, why don't we go to you on this first, and then we can have uh, other people, folks, jump in if they need to. Yeah, thanks for that. And I think one of the the main places where we're looking to provide inspiration and information for people is on our CalScape website, um, calscape.org, mm-hmm. as well as on our cnps.org website. Um, a lot of gardening resources there around best practices. Um, we're working a lot with... Um, ecologists and pollinator folks to bring in more of the garden practices and the groups of plants that will support pollinators year round, as well as providing hosts for caterpillars. So doing a lot of work on that. um, Last year, we supported a bill that would have restricted the use of neonicotinoid pesticides Mm -hmm. in non-agricultural situations, still really supportive of all of that work. Um, so we're we're working on this holistically mm-hmm. as well. So this bill is not our our only engagement with the work. Sure, um, Nina, I wanted to ask you like a slightly different question, um, which is you know one of our listeners earlier called out Cleveland sage um, as her favorite native plant, and I was looking it up on the Calscape website um, here, and I see that it's basic. I mean, I would say it's a Southern California plant. It's kind of the center of its range. It's kind of San Diego. Uh, and the areas um, just east of there. If I plant this, which it is beautiful, and I want to plant it, can I say I'm planting a native plant of this area? You said it's not like you're you're looking at where it occurs, and it's not the area. <laughs> then, I, well, so it's a California native plant. It's not. I so I think we're. I mean, the answer is no. You can't. <laughs> I, I, it, if we're talking about it like the super fine grain detail, right, right? Right. It's still better, I think, and maybe this is just my bias towards California native plants. It's still better than taking something that's completely like, yeah, South African or like European, you know, like right. some totally different plant that has the potential to be invasive, right? And there are California natives that have tendencies to be invasive too. Um, there's one lupin, I think it's like lupin or 
Aquarius. I can't remember. It's yellow. It's like on Point Reyes. But like that plant is becoming super invasive along the California coast. And this is a California native plant, but like we're planting it in new places. And and like the California poppy too, like this is a native plant here in California, but like has the t- a tendency to be super invasive in other parts of the world. So um, yeah, we I think the priority should be planting things that are local to your area. Um, but yeah, I mean, in general, I think have appreciating California natives is, is like a good a good stop, right? Yeah, We're yeah, heading yeah, in the yeah. right direction. Right, sure, sure. Um, yeah. We have a bunch of listener um, comments coming in. Nick writes in to say, I'm going to say my favorite native is the Fremontodendron flannel bush. This is also one of my big faves. Kathy looks like you, she didn't actually like this plant. Well, when you grow Fremontodendron in a nursery, nobody wants to water it because it's got these little hairs on yeah. it. If they rub your skin, you get a rash. Yes. So I planted one anyway. Sorry, okay. kids. Uh, <laughs> mostly because the big yellow flowers are so beautiful that um, that I absolutely love it. Um, another listener uh, wrote in to say they love the wonderfully fragrant Calicanthus occidentalis, a.k.a. California spice bush, or the western sweet shrub. It smells so good in the cool forest glades where it can be found. It was completely burned out of the Bothunapa State Park after the glass fire, but has recovered. Uh, Jameson writes in to say, I plant native plants in sidewalk gardens in San Francisco. My favorite native is California beet strawberry. It's great ground cover to suppress weeds, has pretty white blooms, and produces small berries that the local animals can forage. Uh, Victoria writes in to say, three of my favorites are California hazelnut, uh, Toyan and Rosa Californica. I've got all three in my North Oakland garden, among others. I'm waiting for a native lily to bloom now. I've tried to find what particular natives grew here in my neighborhood, but I'm still not sure. And, you know, I, you know, I was wondering about this, and particularly the herbaria have records of where everything mm. was, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but is there good coverage for sort of like the urban Bay Area, or is it mostly mm. other places? Um, like urban before it was urban? Urban before it was urban, yeah. What is now urban, yeah. Yeah, so that's a great question. I don't know. I don't know. Um, The, yeah, so, yeah, like European botanists came to California and started collecting, and a lot of those specimens are in Herbaria. Um, uh, They probably, yeah, we probably, we definitely, I'm assuming have some in our herbarium, but in general, yeah, like California is still like it is like if you look at like Western states and like where a lot of the plant collecting has happened, California is a hot spot because there's so there's so many people here. It's I mean you know it's so cool here. There's so many like different habitat types and different plants. Um, so there has been a lot of collections here in California, if, especially when you compare to Nevada, like. Nevada has like no collections at all, like it, like in Herbaria. Um, That's so interesting. So, yeah, it's pretty too cool. hot, too hot to too walk, hot. too hot to walk the <laughs> sagebrush. Um, let's uh, let's bring in one last call here. Chris in San Jose, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on. Hey, quick question: How do we address the demand side of this? Um, if you look at the nurseries, if you look at the big box stores that sell plants, they are not promoting. Um, native species. They're barely promoting drought tolerant species. If you go in and you're a consumer, you're just not being oriented to um, these local plants. How do we get the, you know, smaller nurseries, big box stores, people selling commercially to the landscapers? How do we get them to Mm. be promoting 
and, and, and orienting uh, consumers to the right kinds of plants because you're just not seeing them and being oriented them when you enter the stores. Yeah, Chris, it's a good, it's a good point. Andrea, this is a big part of this bill, right, that you're essentially kind of stabilizing demand for these plants, which hopefully brings on the kind of supply that you want from growers. Yeah, we are. And we're also, you know, we've provided a lot of information to nurseries. We've worked with a lot of them closely on our Bloom California campaign, which kind of doubled the demand, um, that doubled the sales of California native plants over a three-year period. So we're working um, with some of the chains. There are some um, native plants that are going into those areas, but we've been talking a lot with um, the producer side and have extended the on-ramp mm-hmm. um, for that. So, yeah, that's we're yeah. we're working really hard on the supply, and we also have a nursery training that we've um, that we've worked with the California Water Efficiency Partnership to give to others as well. Cool. Um, one last uh, comment, Michael Wilcox, I think you'll appreciate this one. Um, Amy writes and say, my favorite California tree is the mighty oak. I love the enormous ancient oaks up in the ridge on the Palo Alto dish trail. In the winter when they're dormant, you can see their fantastic trunk and branching structure. On the Jelly Ferry Trail south of Redding, you can see oaks where acorn woodpeckers have drilled and stashed acorns. They're so stunning, the mighty trunks look like sequin dresses, just gorgeous. Oak ecological communities are so rich. Yeah, uh, it's one of my favorite trees, too. Um, so at, at the dish, we have three large heritage oaks. They're uh, live oaks, or actually they're um, uh, uh, um, valley oaks. And the structure of those oaks is amazing. The, the curls and twists that they take is really inspiring. So part of what we do in the garden is harvest seeds, of course, and then propagate plants. But we also have artistic projects. So students are invited to just paint or do a poem or write, or draw something that they mm. see. And those trees, because of their structure, are just magical. And um, they're, so they're really a, a beautiful thing. They come to life in the spring. They just popped out. And it's a fantastic thing to notice. Yeah, love it. We've been talking about California's native plants, efforts to burst their presence and popularity, how to grow them, what other plants to hate. Uh, joined by Kathy Crane, owner of Yerba Buena Nursery at Pastorino Farms, Michael Wilcox, Senior Lecturer of Native American Studies and Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity at Stanford, Nina House, a museum scientist at the University in Jepson Herbaria at UC Berkeley, and Andrea Williams, Director of Biodiversity Initiatives for the California Native Plant Society. Thank you so much to all of our listeners who called in. I'm sorry we couldn't get to all of you and all the comments. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with guest host Leslie McClurg. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.